And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. And, and what I gather is extremely warm weather in Australia. It has been particularly hot down here in Perth this last week or so. They tell me the hottest week in the last 45 years. Though it's a cooler day today. It was 108 or 109 yesterday uh, in, in, in your old, ye olde empirical uh, record, you know, temperatures. Mm-hmm. Whereas today it's going to be a balmy 98, I believe. So it's going to be quite cool and pleasant by comparison. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Compared to what we are here. So there's been a lot of hiding inside from the horrible heat, and for you? And I'm hiding inside, for once, I'm hiding inside from a group of grandkids. I'm actually out in the suburbs at my uh, daughter's house, and there are seven or eight kids upstairs because I have babysitting duty. And as soon as they, uh, as long as they don't damage each other too seriously, I can get an hour of podcasting in. (laughs) Well, that's a challenge. I mean, my experience with children is getting them not to damage each other for any extended period of time is never easy. The first question you ask is, is anybody bleeding? <laughs> well, yes, uh, that's after the, the, the quick look around to see if anybody's obviously bleeding. Well, yes, there's that. And then, and, and then exactly what sort of damage one needs to control. <laughs> so how's your week in science I, fiction been, my friend? My week in science fiction has been, uh, well, it's, it's been really boring. I mean, I've been doing uh, extremely uninteresting work on, on the famous project I cannot yet talk about. Uh, but if I did talk about it, it would be really boring because what I've been doing is, is making annotations of novels and that sort of thing. Um, and, 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 and reading some things. I started Nancy Cress's new novella or short novel, uh, after the fall, during the fall and before the fall or mm-hmm. in some order of like that, which is an interesting point of view thing. Yep. Uh, and I was thinking about, uh, I finished uh, your year's best and was looking at the tables of contents, I guess. Uh, both Gardner, uh, I guess I've seen the tables of contents of both Gardner uh, and Rich Horton's uh, yeah. years best. And let me, uh, if, if this doesn't make you self-conscious, two things that occurred to me when reading yours and then occurred to me again when looking at the tables of contents. Yeah. That things that seemed to me to be very important four or five years ago that now seem to me almost irrelevant. Um one of them, and you, you've, you've read my reviews of Years Best for, for a long time, so you know, I used to tot up, okay, how's Asimov's doing, and how's FNSF doing, and where are these online zines coming, and how many of the stories come from online-only sources, and how many of them come from print sources, and at one point a few years ago, that seemed to be important. Now it seems completely irrelevant to ask that question. I, I guess the first thing I'd ask you back is, do you think that's you or do you think it's the average reader? I'll, I'll start by saying as well, I think for the average reader out there who picks up one of these books, it's probably fairly irrelevant. I think for an informed industry reader, it's probably quite interesting, if only to see how the measure of excellence in the field is changing. I know that some people have, and I'm thinking of maybe Neil Clark over at Clark's World, have historically mm. looked at, and maybe Sean Wallace as well, have looked at the percentage of online published stories as opposed to print published stories as some kind of measure of metric of acceptance of uh, whatever else it would be. I've never been especially yeah. attracted to that as a way of thinking. And I think you're right. I think that uh, most readers, and I go back to my, you have to divide your reading when you've sort of been professionally involved mm-hmm. for a while to remember what it was like before you were in the industry. And my sense going way back, going back back yeah. to the Judith Merrill anthologies and the Terry Carr anthologies, I never looked at the acknowledgments. I never looked at the sources of the stories. I just assumed the editor would find some good stories somewhere and show them to me. Yeah, I think the first time I really noticed it, because you're, you're right. I mean, I started, I don't know that I was aware of the Judy Merrill bests of the year, but I remember some of the British ones, you know, the uh, Harry Harrison co-edited ones. Right. Um, um, and it would never have occurred to me in a million years, nor with the Don Walheims, which I saw around the place early on. I mean, when I first came into the field, well, as an active reader as opposed to just an enthusiastic one, which would have been the mid-1980s, that's when I really started mm-hmm. encountering Terry Carr's, what were his last run of year's bests, uh, which where I first encountered um, Don Walheims, it's when I encountered Art Sahas, because he was doing the years mm-hmm. of his fantasy at the time, and, uh, and also Carl Wagner's Best Horror, Never crossed my mind for a minute to look at the acknowledgements page. And in fact, I don't think it ever crossed my mind to look at the acknowledgements page, particularly for a anthology right through until much later on. 
there was a time, and I, 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 the key for me, looking back, was reading mm. Gardner's Years Best, because it came out, what, I think the first one came out in about 1984. Yeah. And I read that very, very enthusiastically. Uh, and then I think around the second or third one, I began really poring over the recommended reading. And, of course, the recommended reading list at the back, which in retrospect was about a third of what was being published. Um, right. <laughs> uh, but it, it listed all these sources. And so you start looking to read – when you're becoming active enough to read beyond the content of the actual year's best, which I began to around then, that's when you began to sort of go, okay, well, plainly Asimov's is something – doing quite a lot these days, whatever it might be, because you didn't see it really on the shelf so much. Uh, but it's also where you became aware of you know, science fiction, I maybe, and, and you began pouring through for the reliable smaller zines. Now, I mean, mm -hmm. I guess as an industry insider, which I think it's fair to call both of us, uh, I do pay attention to it. I pay attention to when I'm doing my own book just to try to make sure that I'm not over-reliant on, on a source. Yeah, it's, it's easy. I mean, like I, I completely fell in love with, as you know, uh, Kelly Link and Gavin Grant's Steampunk. Now, I could have taken yes. four stories from that book easily. But I'm not sure that's really encouraging the greatest diversity in the book. And so it, it remains for me a little bit of, say, measure of the diversity of reading you're doing. Um, but for your average reader, I can't imagine why it would matter at all. Nor do I understand, would I understand why uh, being published online or offline would make a spot of difference to the average reader. I don't think it makes any difference anymore. I mean, to some extent, there was... I can understand somebody who, a few years ago, editing an online zine would want to think that, okay, when we make it in anthologies, we've we've been legitimized, um, and that's why I say it's an irrelevant question. I don't think the question, I don't think the legitimization of online sources uh, is any more an issue, um, any more than the legitimization of minor science fiction magazines back in the 50s and 60s. Mm. The, the things like Saturn science fiction or satellite science fiction, they were never. They were never astounding or analog or FNSF and Galaxy, but they were also RANs. But sometimes there would be good stories there. Yep. Um, and I think uh, the the notion of um, of acknowledgments, interestingly enough, in the very first Judith Merrill Year's Best, which was not the Year's Best. The Year's Best tradition was started in 1949 by Blyler and Dickty. Yep. Um, but Judith Merrill made a point in her first couple of annuals of putting in the table of contents very prominently from the Saturday Evening Post, from the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, because she had two missions. One was to mm. demonstrate that there was a lot of science fiction or fantasy in the mainstream media. And the other was she was consciously trying to call attention to the magazines because there were only uh, a handful of them that she thought were important. Um, I don't think that's necessary anymore. I think that you know people who are, who read in the field have have lots of um, access to, to to good stories online or in print. And, and and the only question that I guess used to bother me, and it, it, it maybe it still should, was the question of whether uh, the three big surviving print zines, you know, Asimov's and uh, Analog and FNSF, are going to continue to survive in this environment because what used to be the primary source of all stories is now a minority source. Uh, wow. Hmm. Now, that's an interesting sort of observation. First of all, I suspect they will continue. That's the first thing. Uh, second mm. of all, I think if you look more closely, I think they're probably doing better than you think they are. Uh, Asimov's remains a major source of top quality fiction out there in the world at the moment uh, and, and features very strongly in all the year's bests every year. And FNSF, yes, FNSF is a, a close runner-up. Um, now, you might sit there and say, well, you know, where once upon a time they were a quarter or a third of a book, now they're only 20%. Well, the books are all longer for a start. You know, everybody's doing mm -hmm. long years bests. Uh, you go back and look at your uh, Walheim and your um, car years best. They're all 80, 100,000 words, probably. They're like 12 right, stories. Right, exactly. Now they're all, you know, if you don't have... 25, 30 stories, you're running really short. Uh, so, you know, a lot of other sources at play. Uh, I, the real question is, can those magazines keep up their sales and remain viable? And at the mm. moment, at least, they certainly seem to be. They're, they're, they're critically relevant, and I think some of the changes, I think, I think there's a feeling in the field, uh, at least when I listen to the, the discussion, that, um, say, Asimov's has really freshened itself up in the last three or four years. To help make itself mm -hmm. be a, a bit more relevant, um, both 
Analog and FNSF, I think, have a very clear idea of what their market is, what their profile is, and they're edited very carefully to um, synchronize with that. Now, that does occasionally make them seem a little bit more traditional and a little bit less responsive to, to change for that reason. But nonetheless, I think they're still quite um, vibrant and alive in their own way. I mean, analog remains perhaps a little bit out on the periphery of my personal taste, uh, but it nonetheless has a, quite a devoted readership. So, you know, I think the magazines aren't doing as badly as we'd like to think. And everything oh. cycles around. I mean, you know, a while ago, anthologies were all the rave, and now they're dropping back a bit. Magazines are doing well. The online magazines are, seem to be establishing themselves. So, yeah, you know. Well, I was going to say the, um, uh, the anthology, the original anthology market waxes and wanes uh, in, in, in various degrees every year. And you know this far better than I do, but uh, I'm reading a lot of original anthologies now for the mm. Shirley Jackson Awards. So the one, the one consistency in the field tends to be those continuing magazines. Uh, there was a period back in the first boom in original anthologies, I think the first boom in original anthologies probably was the Roger Elwood era. Uh, and when he was producing about an anthology a week on, and, and, and it seemed like taking anything he could get from any writer he could invite. And I remember thinking at the time, and I remember talking to our mutual friend, Charles Brown at the time that Charles said that during those years, when there were so many original anthologies out, an average issue of Asimov's or fantasy and science fiction would probably have, more and better stories in it than one of these anthologies. I think. Well, um, that, that, I think that's possibly true. I mean, certainly Elwood was a vastly prolific anthologist for a while there in the mid 1970s or whatever it was. Uh, mm-hmm. And you, you've got to wonder just how much loving care and attention went into each one of them. I, the the difference I think with the recent anthology boom, and I think it's a really significant one. Uh, first of all, there was a hell of a lot more anthologists involved in it. You know, it wasn't one prolific anthologist. I mean, because well, that's great, true. I mean, if, if you want to look at it simplistically, the great um, eras of anthology public uh, publication. You know, there was the Elwood era. I mean, there's the, the the earlier sort of we're cleaning up after the magazines period from the 50s on, on when it, mm-hmm. the, you know when the first you know major anthologies were put together and they they sifted through all of the classic uh, golden age periodicals. You got the Elwood era. You got the Marty right. Greenberg era, which really overlaps the you know, the end of the Elwood era on into the the, the early two thousands or so. Right. Uh, and then you know with, with other variants. And then you have the you know, the boom of sort of the mid two thousands, which carried us through until a year or so ago, which and has really begun to fall off significantly now. But there's a variety of publishers involved. There was a variety of editors involved. And at the same time, a huge increase in the volume of stories being written. So I think that, that helped protect us qualitatively uh, somewhat over the last five to ten years. However, you know, the cycles of industry are what they are. And now, you know, there are fewer and fewer places for anthologies to appear, at least for a while. I hadn't thought about that issue that you raised about a huge increase in the quantity of stories being written if if that's the case now i i believe you're right why would that be well i think some of time yeah well i mean it it was at a time when people were being told by their agents go for the novels you know your 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 reputation your career depends on having a novel out Uh, for the last several years people have been told collections of short stories won't sell to major publishers Mm -hmm. which seems to be borne out um why, why did people suddenly start writing so many more stories, or, or were they? Tell me more about that. I mean, I'm, just, I'm curious about that idea. Well, it's just my perception, and I think partly it's because a number of markets opened up. You know, the number of markets around opened up. That tends to encourage people to write. There have been, I think, uh-huh. there's been a real growth in the um, writers' workshop and writers' group kind of setup. That tends to promote people to produce at least publishable level stories. I think more people have been actively interested for whatever reason in the last 20 years in writing short stories. And people have been out there sort of sifting, you know, people like like myself and like my, my, my colleagues have been out there sifting, looking for more and more people to uh, find stories from. And so you you, know, you do you see this increase in, in, in the number of places people can be published. You see the outcome of, hey, MFA programs, Gary. 
you know. Uh, There's there a creative writing industry that wasn't in place 30 years ago, I think. Yeah, I would, I would argue that MFA programs have produced any significant science fiction to speak of. Um, well, maybe not, but they've certainly pr produced a hell of a lot of sort of reasonably literarily written filler uh, to, to, to fill out a lot of um, magazines. Oh, I think a number of people who have gone to get MFAs either were already science fiction writers before they entered an MFA program or, or, or sort of sneaked through MFA programs writing, uh, you know, mainstream mm. uh, kinds of anxiety at breakfast fictions. Uh, I do think Clarion has made an increasing difference. Um, the, more I, the more I look at the, uh, uh, the graduates of Clarion and yeah. the amount of work that they've done consistently over the last 20 or so years, um, I'm, I'm impressed by that, and I've said this to friends of mine who are in MFA programs in universities, that almost that very few MFA programs, possibly the University of Iowa here in the States, could match Clarion in terms of the actual publication rate of its graduates. I'm sure that's – well, that would be interesting to actually to see, to see if it's true, because I don't really have a feel for how effective MFA programs are for producing published writers – um, well, okay, by published writers, let's put published writers in two categories. <laughs> published writers that get paid and published writers that get five free copies of the journal that published their story. <laughs> okay. And, and what you're saying to me is that this is a clear distinction and the vast majority of the MFA graduates fall into the, the, the you know, one particular camp. That's what you're I suggesting. Would, I would, I would uh, based on my own experience, I would estimate that. Uh, we've mentioned before that there are MFA programs that – that have Clarion elements in them, but these yeah. are ones that tend to be run by James Patrick Kelly or by uh, uh, John Kessel or uh, yeah. uh, that involve people like that. But by and large, Clarion, I think, because it actually talks about the business of yeah. sending yeah. proposals and uh, finding editors and just you know, the business of sending things out, there, it's, it's not purely an artistic um, um, kind of seminar the way MFA programs mm -hmm. tend to be. That's true. So I think, I think you're right. I think that because of the discipline imposed both by MFA programs and by workshops like Clarion, and we could mention Odyssey and some other ones as well, that younger writers are encouraged to try their hand at short fiction. And people who otherwise might have written, you know, 1,800-page trilogies for their first novel instead are encouraged to learn something before they try that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that could be true. Too, I'd also think that it's probably true that's changed since the days of you know Dyler and uh, Blyler and Dicty and also a Merrill uh, that occurred to me while we're chatting, and that is, um, I think the fundamental function of a year's best maybe is changing. I think back in the 1950s and through the 60s and 70s, you were focusing attention on the the small number of gems that were around. Now there's a feeling that what you're mm -hmm. doing is you are filtering the flood, um, um, and, and and trying to you know create a, a coherent picture out of that flood for people. I think that's true, and I think that uh, that that varies according to the purpose of the anthology. One of the because as I mentioned that there were two things that used to seem be very important to me and no longer seem even relevant. One of them was the online versus print source. The other one is where do we where do we locate a story in, in, in terms of genre? Is it horror? Is it fantasy? Is it science fiction? And this seemed to be something that uh, the pendulum was swung in both directions. Um, your your anthology, your annual, and Riches are both, if I'm not mistaken, both the year's best science fiction and fantasy. They are indeed, yeah. Which, which is a lot different from the year's best science fiction. Um, hmm. And and in a sense, it's a return to origins. I go back to the Judith Merrill anthologies, uh, which were deliberately blurring the lines between science fiction and fantasy. The classic line-blurring writer of her era might have been somebody like Avram Davidson. Um, and by the by the fourth or, I don't know, at some point along the sequence of Judith Merrill anthologies, she stopped calling them the year's best science fiction and fantasy and just called them the year's best F. And then one editorial said, well, SF can stand for science fantasy, can stand for speculative fiction, whatever you want it, because there's this broad purview of stories I want to look at. I think that there was a, a counter tradition of that following on Merrill, which, which, which Gardner sort of took to its uh, finest extreme of let's look at science fiction alone. Mm -hmm. And the, the, what, what, what I'm now seeing is irrelevant is when I went through your anthology, and I'm sure the same thing will happen with Riches, 
uh, what I used to do was tell them, okay, and I'm sure some readers would do this still. Uh, how many of these are really science fiction stories and how many of these are really fantasy stories and how many of these are sort of somewhere in between and how many of these are not really well, they're strange, but... And totting up genres doesn't seem relevant to me anymore either. It seems to me that a given story could... There, there are clearly extremities. There are hard SF stories. You've got a Hanu Ryan Emmy sure, story. Sure, sure. But the hard SF stories will use the language of fantasy. The fantasy sure. stories may use the language of hard SF. Uh, and that categorization of stories into into inboxes doesn't seem to work as well anymore. I, I don't think it has. I think we've gone through a period starting, you know, when the slipstream movement was started. I mean, in fact, even that's probably not true. There's always been sloshing around between genres and overlapping. What's changing oh, yeah. more, I think, is the way we're willing to talk about it and think about it. Um, now, Rich and I, in terms of our books, went through exactly the same experience. We're both editing a year's best science fiction and a year's best fantasy anthology series. And I think when you're doing that, much as, say, Gardner is doing with his year's best science fiction, as David Hartwell is doing with his year's best science fiction, as Alan Detlow does with her, her year's best horror, as Steve Jones does with his year's, mm -hmm. his year's best horror, as Paula Garand does with her book, uh, year's best paranormal book, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, those books require you to set up definitional, definitional filters and boundaries. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do a year's best science fiction, yeah, it has to look and feel like science fiction. Otherwise, you're not really doing your job. You're not communicating honestly with a reader. You're not putting together a book that makes sense in that context. Right. However, what I felt when I because I mean I I did it I did it first. When you do the uh, did I felt when I did a year's best science fiction and fantasy, suddenly rather than having to say well I've got a hundred thousand words of science fiction, a hundred thousand words of fantasy, and let's intermingle them in a nice way, which is closer to what I did with the first one. But not entirely true. Uh, what began, what opened up was this idea that, well, frankly, there's now this kind of Boolean set overlap where there's this middle ground period of stuff, and it has mm -hmm. to be covered in you know genre pixie dust. You know, it has to be a genre story, but it doesn't have to matter at all whether it's science fiction or fantasy. Now, as it happens, I think that re that is a more accurate reflection of where the greatest creativity in our field is at the moment. You know, I think the field, if you actually look at it, is a series of these overlapping groups. And if you pull it out at its coarsest level, it is a science fiction, fantasy, horror trio overlapping in different ways, creating little subsets of overlap groups uh, with varying degrees of strength. You know, something that's very you know, strongly science fiction and weakly horror or something that's strongly, you know, maybe moderately right. strongly fantasy also kind of strongly science fiction. Um, and I think for some readers, that's still a very important distinction. But I think it's important for fewer and fewer readers, um, at least of short fiction. And I think we have to be very careful in equating the thoughts and actions of a science fiction audience, or, or, or of a short fiction audience, with the, the reading habits of a novel reading audience i think they're still different i think that may be true I, I i tend to agree with that and i think there are uh a number of writers whose short stories to me to seem seem to be quite different from the novels i mean uh one of our one of our friends and uh, uh past and i hope future guest jeffrey ford writes very interesting novels but his short stories are clearly exploring a lot of a lot more territory than he can possibly get to in his mm -hmm. novels uh and and that makes him uh, you know, a, a fascinating writer, but do we want to? Some of the stories are possibly horror stories. Some of them are science fiction. Well, not well. Yeah, science fiction. You wrote a, you wrote a space opera story for you, and um, a sword and sorcery story for me, and a sword and sorcery story. And he's written fairy stories and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And yet, most people, I think, by now who have become familiar with with Jeff Ford, are going to read pretty much whatever he would write. Um, there, and there are any number of short story writers, both brand fairly new ones and, and ones that have been around for a few years who are like that. So, so that they have a sense of a kind of story that, that they write and that their readers will follow them to. And I don't think that these writers are worrying about what genre it belongs into or, um, or at least they're not worrying about that beyond uh, which editors they might be able to sell it to. Um, and the reason I mentioned this is something that's, that's happened in the last few years is that putting fantasy and science fiction together is – 
to some extent, a historical moment after the year's best fantasy and horror, which was edited excellently for many years by Ellen Dadlow and Terry Windley, but in which the stories were essentially labeled by editor. There would be three kinds of stories in the, in the Dadlow-Windley anthologies. There would be Ellen's horror stories, there would be Terry's fantasy stories, and there would be a handful of stories that were signed off on by both of them. Yeah. And those stories always were the most interesting ones to me in their anthologies. Because essentially you have one person saying it's a fantasy story and the other person saying it's a horror story and and the reader thinking, well, yeah, they're both right. <laughs> I, I think there's truth to that. I, I, I do. Though, again, I, I guess just to be sort of argumentative, I, I can't help but wonder if this is an insider's discussion, you know, uh, whether our, you know, the, the average person, if the average person did pick up the year's best fantasy and horror, even noticed that co-signing. Uh, well, they they did it at the head notes of their story, of the, of the story selections, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's true that may not have been noticed, but by and large, the the, the Dadlow and Windling anthologies, as strong as they were, struck me as being uh, a, 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 in in some sense a forced mating of um, unlike stories. And my understanding is that they the order of the stories was not actually assembled by either uh, Ellen or Terry. But the resulting effect would be that any reader would, would, would read a, a, a sweet pastoral uh, waif-like story, maybe something, maybe 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 a Charles Delint sort of urban fantasy with you know fairies in in, in in Canada, and then follow it up with some vicious chewing up razor blades splatterpunk story. I'm thinking of the, <laughs> and I can't think of any reader thinking, well, this is a logical progression. <laughs> True, but then I, I don't know. Maybe I'm the kind of reader who occasionally finds that really attractive. You know, mm -hmm. that sometimes those harsh dissonances sometimes are very rewarding. You know, I, I find a, a book that is any kind of book, whether it's you know an anthology or whatever, that is yeah you know, really consistent. Mm -hmm. I find a bit boring. I, I I want the next story to be unlike the story I've read. Now, I mean, yes, there are ebbs and flows and rhythms, and we've talked about them before. Right. Uh, but I don't think it's a bad thing to do what you're talking about. I mean, yes, it may throw throw some readers, and I could certainly. I'm not. Saying, I'm not mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm not arguing it's a bad thing. I'm arguing that what it is for, and I, I'd love to hear from some of our listeners to find out if they had the same experience reading these things because mm -hmm. I was reading them year after year, and thinking if I knew nothing about the field at all, and I went from this story to that story. I would think there have to be two different editors at work here because that, the sensibilities and intense intentions of the stories are so radically different. That may be the case. Wow. Though I also wonder whether, and I, I'm not being too difficult with this, I hope. Um, hmm. I wonder whether the average person reading that, reading that, a book like that would have taken that, that further step. Would they simply have read it and gone, that's weird and moved on or gosh, I wasn't expecting that and moved on. Um, That's what I'd like. I, 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 I don't know. Um, now, I suspect they probably would have done exactly that. that, that, that the, the, and, I, and I'm not even talking about some kind of simplistic, degraded kind of reader. I'm talking about someone who reads you know, en enough in the field to care to pick up a year's best, but not necessarily to feel that they're creating their own theory of the field and they're studying the history of the field and how things have evolved and really paying attention to the structure of an anthology, which is not something that you know, I think most readers do. Uh, though most readers may disagree with me, and certainly I wouldn't be surprised to find that our listenership, the the Crude Street community, would um, be unlikely to do that. In fact, I think they're the kind of group who would be more more likely to do that, who would sit there and sift and analyze. You know, I, I, I'll also say, I mean, you know, we're talking I about think that's true. yeah. No, I, I, I was going to say, I, I think readers have become. Uh, sophisticated about that sort of thing, and I think that there are there may be uh, a handful, well, more than a handful, some um, uh, hard science fiction readers, people who are analog subscribers, who would look at your year's best, for example, and say that story doesn't interest me, and that one doesn't interest me, but this is what I want. Mm -hmm. um, I think more and more the readership is is the way you describe it as being uh, people who want uh, a, a quality of story. More than a categorization of story. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, well, no, it just may be that, that, that that's my experience because that's the approach I've taken with the books I've done and I've deliberately tried to 
foster that approach. And I know that that is not everyone's approach, you know, um, not that it has to do with quality. I mean, the quality is there, of course, but um, I know that, well, it's, it's my feeling that, say, that David Hartwell's Year's Best is much more of a attempt to create a certain kind of field, you know, just as, gar as Gardner's is very much an attempt, an attempt to focus on science fiction in a particular way. Um, for for me, it's, it's more reflect hopefully reflecting what's happening out there, and I think Rich is probably more like that as well, though I, I hesitate to put words in his mouth. I mean, David uh, David Hartwell and Catherine Kramer have made it very clear that they believe boundaries are good yeah. and that science fiction should be science fiction and fantasy should be fantasy. They're not saying that you can't have both, but they're saying that there's value in keeping those definitions there. Um, my, my sensibility has been that there are stories, and we've talked about this before, that if you if you really look at them, if you run some litmus test through them as to whether this is science fiction, fantasy, or horror, it may fail all tests. It may come out. I don't know what litmus is supposed to turn what blue or red or something. Something like that, yeah. And it comes out green or purple, and, and you don't know what it is. One of the most interesting stories of the past year, uh, I think, because I read it for the first time in your annual, was, was Mary, M. Rickert's The Corpse Painter's Masterpiece. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the title, right off the bat, the title seems to tell you it's a horror story. Yep. Um, and there are elements of horror in it. It's certainly got some grotesquerie in it. Uh, I, I'm not sure there are really clear elements of fantasy in it, but there there are. I mean, but but there are also elements of completely, um, uh, almost heartbreaking kind of relationship stories about it. I mean, the, the story depends so heavily on how the characters work mm. that at some point you begin to think, well, we would almost limit this story by calling it one thing or another. It's well, a story that does many things. Well, like Mary particularly, uh, and the other writer who comes to mind when I think about this sort of thing is Margot Lanigan. Uh, mm. Mary tends to write great, you know, really stories of really strong character interaction with almost tangential you know, genre elements, which are nonetheless yeah. integral to the story. Uh, but they're not the, the, the core uh, point of the story, I guess, in some ways. Or they're not what you... No, they're not at the forefront of the story. They're not the thing you notice the most. The thing you notice the most are, are the character inter interactions, and that's what makes them work so well. But, you know, if you're going to talk about, you know, sort of this year's stories, I mean, I think a story like uh, The Man Who Bridged the Mist by Kids Johnson mm -hmm. um, is equally indicative of, of how things are going. Because surely that's a science fiction story written somewhat in the language of fantasy. Um, it's interesting because I had, in uh, Cage is turning out to be one of the most interesting writers in the field because she can, she started out as a fantasy writer very clearly mm -hmm. uh, when she won the Crawford Award several years ago for The Fox Woman, has written hard science fiction, has written wildly experimental fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and now you have one which, yeah, it, it, it's, it takes place on a world in which a chasm is full of mist that has, um, monsters in it. Well, that's that's stuff out of Stephen King. You know, that's that that that's horror material. Mm -hmm. um, but she never plays really it for horror. horror. But she ne she never plays it for, she horror. Plays it for horror. Yeah. Um, there is um, there. I don't think we're ever specifically told we're on another planet. No. Or or are we are we in a fantasy world? Uh, and yet um, there's a strong science fictional element in it. In that it's really very heavily about bridge building. Yes, it is. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, sort so of the discussion of the bridge building is about is laid out in order to evoke character and character interaction. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and so you think, yeah, um, and the whole story could have been told. That, that story, that kind of story, fascinates me because the story, which deals with essentially a problematical romance between two characters, uh, could have been told without. It could it could have been told as a historical fiction? Completely, certainly, yes. Could have been written as as, as Thornton Wilder's the you know the Bridge of San Luis right, uh, but but it has these genre layers in it which permit you to read it as science fiction and permit you to read it as fantasy and permit you to read it as horror, which I think add quite a bit to the story. Uh, and yet I don't think any one of those genres could be isolated as the genesis of that story. No, I don't think they could. And in fact, I think if you applied your litmus test, it would come up purple. Uh, yeah. or purple with yellow stripes or something because it uses 
the language of engineering, which makes you mm. feel as though you're reading science fiction. It is, it has almost an explanation for the creatures in the mist, the fish in the mist. Um, and so you sit there and you hypothesize that you're on an alien world with some kind of strange creatures that are native to there, and obviously humans must be, uh, you know, they've got some kind of colony, or they've been colonized the planet, whatever it is, da-da-da-da. But that's not in the story, really. Uh, it could just as easily be a secondary world fantasy, you know, in, 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 exactly. say, in, a, in a Jack Vance mode, you know, for, so, so, for, say, for example. could just as easily be a Vancean kind of a story. Um, but because Johnson, and it says a lot about how good a writer she is, because she refuses to push any of those elements to the fore, she manages to create a really intriguing and engaging um, and provocative kind of a, a, a texture to the story, a feel for the story that she's telling. And then she lays a story on top of that's really powerful emotion and that really works per perfectly. And that's why, I mean, I would always say that that is one of the top three, four stories we saw all year. Uh, something which doesn't surprise me from, from Johnson and wouldn't surprise you. Um, but, yeah, it, it seems to me that if you were to judge that story and say, well, you know, it fails as science fiction because of X... Uh, or it fails as fantasy because of why, and hence the story is a failure, then you would have missed the fundamental point of the story, and you would have missed the temper of what's happening in the field at the moment that allows a story like that to be one of the major stories at the front of the field. I mean, her other really experimental story of the year, Story Kit, didn't get quite as much uh, response out there because it wasn't a wildly experimental story in many ways, structurally and all that kind of thing, or at least experimental, not wildly, but it was experimental right. structurally. Um, whereas the, the, you know, the brilliance of The Man Who Bridged the Mist is I think it's in many ways just as experimental just it uses sufficient um, normal narrative technique that you don't notice it initially I think you don't but I do think that there are ways of reading the story that would disappoint I think you're right if you read it as a science fiction story and said well I want to hear more I can imagine some of you are saying uh, I want I want to find out more about what it's what what you, what you need to what problems you need to solve to build a a bridge over mist or or the question of why does the mist support these ferries I mean mm -hmm. mist doesn't support boats how does that work yeah. um, then somebody like a, a reader who is rigorously a science fiction reader is, could be disappointed a reader who is rigorously a genre fantasy reader saying well it, it, tell us more about this world could be disappointed because the world is in the service of the story. And this is a movement which I think, and it, I think it is a trend in fantastic literature. I think uh, Michael Swanwick was one of the godfathers of this mm -hmm. trend, which is that the genre content of the story is subsumed to the story's own shape, which might be, in, in, in the case of Kids Johnson's story, is a story about characters, a story about an interaction between two characters, basically. Yeah. Um, and it, it doesn't have to belong into one genre or the other. The other story, which you've included, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, Rich has in here's yours best as well, was the K.G. Parker story. Yeah, A Small Case of Birds song or whatever it was. Uh, right, and it's set in the same world as uh, some of his novels mm -hmm. or her novels. And um, it's has all the... It, it, this is about a composer and, uh, and the composer's former teacher who is not as brilliant, but the composer is a serial killer, which is a problem. Yeah. Um, and, at, and you read through the whole thing, it's this wonderful sort of um, rich fantasy world, which I've noticed showing up lots and lots in uh, the, the last few years. It's not, it's not the medieval fantasy world. It's the mercantile, like, 17th, 18th mm -hmm. century fantasy world. Charlie Strauss has written about this world, you know. Um, it's in, in some ways, it's finally we're getting away from Tolkien medievalism. But apart from being in that world, is that a fantasy story? Uh, now, I'm trying to remember the story that I was talking to Elisa Krasnerstein or interacting uh -huh. with her on via email. And she brought up an, a novel, and I honestly forget what it was. And she sort of said, why is this book listed as fantasy when really there's no fantasy at the forefront of it? You know, uh, mm -hmm. it's basically a historical novel. But it's kind of set in a secondary world. Right. And you're sitting there going, well, that's the answer. That's why it's fantasy. I mean, this is why, well, Guy K's Under Heaven. Why is it a fantasy novel? There's a little bit of mention of spirits and whatever else, but it could have been a straight historical novel kind, pretty much, 
without any real change. And I think Absolutely. what you're seeing is, I guess what, rather than really sort of cod medieval stuff, you're seeing a kind of fantasy evolve that picks up on that 16th, 17th century kind of economics that you're talking about. Yeah. But really adds no particular magic to it. There's very, not a lot of magic in most of Parker's short fiction. No, that's true. And then and, some of the novels, Fencer novels, are not particularly fantastic. Um, but and it's used, or and when it is used, it's used with a very light hand. This is also something you see with, say, George Martin. You know, I haven't read the last few novels, but certainly at the beginning of the Game of Thrones sequence of novels, um, mm. there wasn't much magic and evidence. Not a lot of. Uh, confirmation that the, the, the magic you saw was actually real and functioning and, and, or, and wasn't anything other than perceptual. So what you find is almost like magic gets used in these fantasies as texture. And it's used very lightly and finely as texture. Um, and it's, it, it's the world that gives you that feel of fantasy. And the fact that you're obviously not in a... in in our world, in our timeline. I mean, uh, I would suggest that probably the majority of Parker's work could have been cast as historical fiction if he'd really wanted, or she'd wanted, really wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And I, I think that's true I mean, with, with, with a lot of what you're seeing right now. I mean, I've just started to read Saladin Ahmed's debut novel, uh-huh. uh, Throne of the Crescent Moon. I'm just sort of a couple of chapters in. And I suspect that when I get to the end of it, though I may be wrong, that it will fall into that camp as well. That's the temper of our time. Where are we getting more jaded or inured or skeptical or something about magic itself, or overt fantasy? And so we're looking for something which actually um, uh, brings that. I in. don't think it's new. I, 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 I don't think it's a matter of because the the kind of thing you're talking about, I'm thinking there there are Peter Dickinson novels that mm-hmm. that, that this, so they're essentially historical novels set in an imaginary version of let's say an Egyptian kingdom. There are novels like The Blue Hawk. There are novels certainly like Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast novels, in which you know, magic doesn't really play a significant role. But what it does is open up the possibility in reading the narrative that something could happen, that this novel is not constrained by history. And I, I know this is one of the things that Guy Kay is interested in, uh, because he's written a, a lot of novels that are very deliberately and very consciously, and he's perfectly willing to talk about the fact that, okay, you know, this is Tang Dynasty China, or, the, or, or this is medieval Florence, or whatever it is. Uh, but he didn't want to be constrained by history. Mm. Um, and I think, this, I think the, the, odd, the odd thing is the reverse works as well, that you might have historical novels, that introduce fantasy elements that are consistent with the worldview of those novels. Um, there are, I'm thinking of two, two writers in particular. One is Cecilia Holland, sure. uh, who, 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 since she's writing from a Viking point of view, if Vikings believe in demons and spirits, they're going to show up in the novel because sure. we're looking at it from that worldview. And Gene Wolfe has done the same thing with The Soldier of the Mist, The Soldier of Sidon, that series of novels. Uh, they're essentially historical novels written from a worldview of people who believe in magic yeah, uh, and see, therefore see magic in the world. Yeah. This, this might be a nonsense thing to ask, but are we seeing the field absorb the techniques of, fa- of historical f- fiction writing? Is that what we're seeing? I think we've seen that for quite a while. I mean, the degree to which Guy K, for example, does research, um, it finds out every, I mean, it, it's, it's impressive how much he knows about, um, in, in, in his current, uh, you know, his latest novel about uh, Tang Dynasty China. Uh, yeah, the research is clearly there. I think that uh, for years, for some years now, I've actually written about this, science fiction has been trying to colonize historical fiction. If you look at Stephen Baxter's series of, was it four or five volumes that began, The Tapestry of Time, mm-hmm. uh, The Emperor and so forth and so on, begins with a prehistory of Roman Britain and ends up with a alternate world time travel science fiction adventure. And to me, that's one of the most fascinating. It's, 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 it hasn't got as much discussion as it probably should have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but maybe because Baxter just writes a lot of different things. But this is a series of novels that begin clearly as historical fiction with some odd supernatural yep. portents in them. Which, and by the end is clearly a science fictional series, which retroactively become science fiction. In other words, the first volume is clearly science fiction once you've read the fourth volume. Yes. 
Uh, so, and so, I think that, yeah. Uh, so, so it happens more and more these days. Um, I think so. I guess one of the things I'm, I'm wondering is whether this also applies to science fiction. I mean, there's a conversation we were touching on yesterday off the air, and which mm-hmm. probably will uh, feature in a forthcoming episode of the Creature Street Podcast. Um, and that is to what extent those techniques are also being applied to science fiction. Uh, and you know, particularly with respect to, say, 2312, the forthcoming Kim Stanley Robinson novel. Well, there, there, I think historiography and science fiction has an interesting relationship because uh, I taught a course once on with a with a fellow faculty member who is a historian, and we were using Olaf Stapledon. Yeah. Uh, and I think we used yeah. Asimov because how accurately does science fiction portray historical processes? Stan Robinson is fascinated with historiography, uh, as as you get from the years of Rice and Salt, where he tried to imagine mm. the last seven hundred years of history. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there are Probably, if you wanted to explore this, and we should probably talk to Stan again about it sometime, to be yeah. or Cecilia, there probably are methods used by historians that are very similar to methods used by science fiction writers. Yes, I'm sure there are. You have to extrapolate from what evidence is available. Yes. Interesting. And, of course, this then asks to what extent uh, classic uh, historical novels are actually fantasies. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to, what, to the extent to which they have to be fantasies, actually, because, you know, and, and I believe this is obviously that, that, that core point that Guy Kay has addressed a number of times, around, you know, in discussing this, which is, you know, we are, after all, filling in information about things we don't really know the details of. Uh, and we end exactly. up, you know, so you end up going out there in the world and inventing conversations, in effect, or uh, taking things which have been mentioned in, at best, glancing sort of uh comment somewhere and build it into an entire section of a book or a book or whatever with accompanying research and everything else but they are historical fiction you know which and historical fiction and in that sense not that different from fantasy really no they're not and and, and when i was a kid i remember picking up oh i picked up dante's divine comedy especially the inferno i picked up the odyssey not the Mm -hmm. iliad but the odyssey because they were great fantasy stories yeah um they were fantasy stories to the people who listened to them originally possibly uh, but but it, it certainly seemed to the, the whole business of Scylla and Charybdis and the whole uh, you know, the, all that Greek mythology stuff. It's something like we were talking to Sophie about last night with Percy and the Olympians. Yeah. And she's she seems to be seeing the Greek mythology as fantasy, which is exactly what I did when I was her age. Well, well, I, I think in in her case, and I mean she'll get to talk to, about that with us at some point but i think that's partly because well okay there's two reasons that, that she would see it as fantasy first of all she you know she, she sees percy jackson and the lightning thief cast in exactly the same light within society as a book like harry potter and the chamber of secrets you know it, it markets mm-hmm. in the same area it's had, had a movie made of it all that kind of stuff and also at least in my household we tend and i'm careful here because i know that it's not true for everybody, but we don't see gods as real particularly. And certainly I would suggest right. to you that there are very few practicing believers in the Greek pantheon of gods any longer. I think that's true. I, I guess the question I'm asking is, does Sophie see the notion that Zeus and Poseidon and Apollo and all the Greek gods, Artemis, existed before Rick Riordan? I think she's beginning to, yes. I really do. See, uh, uh, you know, with, with uh, Harry Potter, you don't have that. I mean, I, I, I have not, to be honest, I've not read any of the uh, Percy Jackson novels. But part of me admires what, uh, what, what that author is doing because he is, I think, generating some interest in children and kids and young adult writers. I don't know what age he's writing for. In finding that there's a fantasy tradition that goes back at least as far as literature does. Yes, I think, I think that's exactly true. I mean, I think he writes mostly for, you know, sort of middle grade slash young YA. So he's writing for the, you know, 9 to 14 set, kind of roughly. Uh, his characters are all sort of 12, 13 years old. So it's that kind of mm-hmm. age group. Uh, and they're very accessible stories. Y- you can see the way the world is responding to interest in those books, though. You know, uh, we were, I was in New York with the family back in October, and we went to mm-hmm. the... Um, the, the Met, I think it was. Or no, MoMA. Went to MoMA. And they the had... Yeah, the, Modern, the Museum of Modern Art. And they had a 
display where you could go and see. No, it must be. I'm getting. It is the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But, yeah, Sorry, I, I'm, I'm getting. I'm turning myself around here. Uh, but anyway, they had a big. Uh, they had a tour you could go on to see uh, artifacts relevant to Percy Jackson. You could go and see portrayal, you know, like you know, uh, statues of Zeus and of Poseidon and of Hades and, and their artifacts that were relevant because, of course, these now fantasy figures of the 21st century were religious icons of their time and were created. Right. And they're all in museums. And so, yeah, there's, there's a crossover interest. And I see Sophie going off and researching it just as she's coming into the room now. Hi, Sophie. Hi. Sophie, before you came along... We were talking about uh, um, mythology and fantasy and Percy Jackson and about how um, how you saw the characters and how they're connected to stuff in the real world stories. You know, like how you felt about the difference between, say, Poseidon in, this, in, in a Percy Jackson story and Poseidon in Greek mythology. Well, um, I actually never really thought about that. I think I just felt the same way because I never really knew, I never really like knew what Poseidon was before Greek mythology, but before Percy Jackson, not Greek mythology. Sorry. Well, when you read something like Percy Jackson novels or look at the movies, does that do, do you want to go out and read more stuff about Zeus and Poseidon and our, our Artemis and Mars and all that, all those all those characters? Yeah. Because there are lots and lots of stories about those characters. And Percy, I'm oh, no, sorry, Rick Riordan didn't make those characters up. You're aware of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm aware of they didn't make the gods up or anything. But, yeah. But, I mean, I think he may have made Percy Jackson up. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean. Right, okay. But, but that's a big difference between uh, Harry Potter, say, and... Percy Jackson, isn't it? Yeah, because um, Percy Jackson actually has a bit more real, real like I mean, like, not real, but like it has more of a history. You feel like it connects to our world more? Yeah, yeah, that's what I well, people, yeah, because I mean, Harry Potter, people used to believe in in witchcraft, for example, but 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 you know, characters like Dumbledore and all, all the uh, uh, characters in Harry Potter. Were, were basically made up by by the author, J.K. Rowling. And Rick Riordan took characters that people have been writing about for thousands of years. There are thousands of stories about Zeus and Poseidon and Mars and so forth and so on. Uh, and people used to believe those. That was the religion. Hmm. Um. Which is a very strange kind of idea. I mean, just think, a story like Percy Jackson and the Light Lightning Thief told in the time of the Greeks, would almost have been blasphemous, wouldn't it? Except it wouldn't be Percy Jackson, it would be something, someone well, yes, like uh, Perseus or... Uh, Perseus or Callicrates or somebody. Jason. Or Jason. Because you've now got to the end of the, the series, haven't you? Yeah, I'm now on the first book of the second series, which is um, about um, some new demigods, um, Jason and some others off to save... The goddess of heaven and marriage. And of course, that, and, sorry, Hera. Hera, okay. I was going to say anybody, anybody who's familiar with uh, with myth will, of course, assert, wonder if this Jason character is some sort of a stand-in for, you know, Jason and his Argonauts. Yeah, um, actually, that was mentioned in the book. So, um, there's a very, very there's there's a quite large chance that that is that Jason. Yeah. How did you feel that oh. uh, the series ended? You know, like the, the first series, like the whole structure of it, did it all come together well? Yeah, yeah, it did. I think it did. Good. I mean, I don't. I I've not read the series, and I only saw the movies. So Percy Percy turns out okay in the end. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, what okay, that's good. This. Yeah, I, I, she's, she's, I, know. I have disagreements, Gary, you see, just as you know. Uh, she'll come running in to tell me all about the series. I'm going, well, I read the first book. I might read the other ones. You don't go around telling people the end. Or if I've read a series, she'll come into me and say, what happens next? I'm going, read the book. No. 
I don't do that to any other people. Just you and mom and Jessica. That's all. Fair enough. That's a so you'd tell me the end of the book if I ask you? No. Okay, I didn't think so. My friend keeps asking but, me but, the end of the fourth book, and I don't tell her. Okay, here's the thing, though. You, okay, okay. now, Sylvia, you've read the first book of the second series. But the other books in the second series aren't out yet, right? One of them is, The Son of Neptune. Yeah, there's okay. three books in the series. So there are two books. Two out later this year. And, yeah. and Rick Riordan has, has not published the third one yet, right? No. So would you want to know what the ending is right now before you ever read that book? No. Of course not. So... That's why we don't want to know how the first series ends. <laughs> because that's the fun of reading. It's the problem of, of reading spoilers. is to find out what happens. It's spoilers. So if you've never yeah. talked about spoilers, have we really? But you can't tell. You, know, you don't want to spoil stories for other people, do you, Gary? Now that's something that, that critics and reviewers do all the time. Yeah, we get paid by the spoiler. <laughs> huh. But the thing about the Greek gods. Um, Sophie, in all those books, and, and you go back and look at books about mythology, and, and, and there are other novels about characters like that, and there are novels about Hercules, and novels about Odysseus, and there are movies like Troy, which is, uh, you know, about Paris and Achilles and so forth and so on, that no matter how many stories you tell about those characters, they're still there. Yeah. Because, because those myths, those original stories, are still in the world, and you can't ever really kill off. Zeus or Poseidon or Achilles because they're out there. It would be cool to like know people's favorite myths and like what was the first myth ever written. I've agreed. They were, you know, before people ever wrote down myths, they told them to each other and they memorized them. But like, I, I just wonder like what was the first myth ever told and like what were the original words? It would be kind of cool to find out. I can tell you the first myth ever written down, and it's something you can Google and you can look up. It's called Gilgamesh, mm. and it's an ancient Sumerian myth, which is the oldest written story, pretty much the oldest written story we have, and it involves a hero who fights a monster and goes into a wasteland, and there's a big flood in it. Uh, you can find it. I bet there are versions of it that you could read. And it's, it's the oldest myth we have written down anywhere. And before that, all we had uh, were people telling stories to each other. But sometimes, when, 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 when we get done with this podcast, you go Google Gilgamesh, G-I-L-G-A-M-E-S-H. I'll try to remember that. <laughs> I can <ask. laughs> okay, sure. I'm sure you'll remember it. I am confident, my lady. Uh, yes. Well... You can go to museums, actually. If you ever came to Chicago, Sophie, which I keep mentioning, but it's not the only place. We have a little fragment. Sorry. Um. There's a little stone tablet that has strange writing on it that looks like wedges, looks like triangles and, 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 and dots and various things. And it's a piece of the original clay tablet on which the Gilgamesh was written down. Because people used to write on clay tablets using wooden instruments rather than writing with pen and ink. And so the oldest stories we have in the world, which happen to be fantasy stories, now that I think about it, um, are written down on stone, and one tiny piece of one of those stones is here in Chicago. Wow. Wow. We do have a piece of the Gilgamesh at the University of Chicago. And that's what, four and a half thousand years old? Yeah, about that, I think. Maybe, maybe no, maybe more than that. Yeah, it sounds about right. Four to six thousand years old. I'm sure our listeners will correct us on the date of the Gilgamesh tablets. Wikipedia says 2500 BC. Okay, that sounds good. Um, actually, in my book, um, in the book that I'm reading right now, um, uh, The Lost Hero, the first book of the second series for Percy Jackson, uh -huh. um, they just pa they just went, they just, they just left Chicago. They did. All right, I'm 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 completely in Rick Riordan's camp now. <laughs> uh, though sadly, whilst I may come to Chicago this year, Sophie won't. Not this year. Take a photo for me. Well, I'll take I'll take a photo for you. Yeah, it's, it's it's okay. It's okay, Sophie. It's 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 much much better to go to Brighton. 
Yes, next year. You can go to Brighton. That is so cool. See, that, that's something which we should probably fill in. We were having a conversation yesterday, the three of us, yeah. because, you know, the world happens outside the podcast, surprisingly enough. And I was just saying that I've been talking about taking Sophie to the World Fantasy Convention in Brighton, assuming that it doesn't conflict with school too badly. And um, that that would be fun. And we'll also go up to London and have a look around. So, in fact, mm-hmm. people from the podcast, if this continues, will be able to, may be able to meet Sophie at World Fantasy in 2013. That would be wonderful. Quietly. You have to understand, visual clues don't come through on the podcast. <gasps> I know. That's true. <laughs> Ah, well, perhaps, he says, on that cheery note, we might wind up our podcast, Gary. We might. And thank you, Sophie, for coming and joining us. Hopefully we'll get you to pop in for a little time uh, from time to time in the coming weeks and months. Excellent. Okay. All right. And um, we will talk next week then. I am confident we will. Good talking to you, Gary. Okay. Good talking to you. Bye. Bye, Sophie. Thank you. Bye. Okay. You're welcome.